Uh, So we're looking at John chapter 13 today, and we'll be reading uh, verses 1 to 21. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand why I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So when I was in college, I decided I was going to run in a half marathon. And I'd never run long distance running before. So I went to uh, the rec center and this trainer put together a schedule for me and told me exactly how much I should be running on on each day and when I should have rest days and whatnot. And uh, he kind of calculated it to the race day and kind of put the whole schedule together. And I followed that schedule pretty religiously. And so I got close to the race, and the race is 13.2 miles. And the Saturday before or Friday before, somewhere the week before, I decided I was going to try out to see if I could actually do it. So I ran like 13.2, 13.3, something like that. And I was confident by the race day that I could actually run this race. Now, my goal was never to compete with anyone or to get a great time. I just wanted to finish the race. So I get to the race day, and I decided I was going to try some new insoles on the day of the race day. That wasn't a good idea. But also, on the way to the race, I was so excited that I thought, I'm not just going to try to finish. I'm going to try to get a good time for this race. So I go to the starting line, and there's dozens and dozens of people around me, and I'm just, I'm just stoked. And I got my earbuds playing, I got some worship music going, and the gun goes off, and I just take off like a rocket. And I'm just on the top of the world, the classic runner's high, I'm just blowing by everybody. And you know how that ended, right? You know, I get to mile 10 or 11, and I just died. I couldn't finish the race. And I think that spiritually, sometimes we do this something similar. I think spiritually, sometimes we hear a message that speaks to us in a certain way. We read God's word, 
Uh, maybe we do a Bible study, and, and, and we're all excited about what God has t- taught us. And we're all ready to put that into practice. And then we go out into our everyday lives, and we start putting those things into practice. And at first, we're doing really well. But then we go a little bit down the road, and we kind of go back to our old ways. And I think specifically, specifically, we often do this when we talk about love and loving those around us. Love is a concept that's hard to define, and it's something that's kind of woven into our cultural consciousness. Uh, PBS did a series called The Great American Read several years ago, and they explored America's 100 best-loved novels. And the series noted that one theme emerged in these 100 best-loved novels, and that was love that endures. Here are some of the quotes from literature experts that commented on the series and the novels. One said, love is the driving force behind everything that we do. So I think reading about all these different types of loves and the ways in which they present is one of the great human questions. Another says, I love a good story. I think everybody wants, or I love a good love story. I think everybody wants it. If you don't want it, you're trying to get it. If you have it, you're trying to keep it. Another said, every book on this list is about love and death and finding love that transcends death. He says, I mean, who's not going to love a love story? We're fascinated Another says, by the fact that things can go wrong in love, we don't want to go there. We don't want this sort of thing to happen to us. I think we're fascinating and we're moved by love, and there's this sort of mythology around love that if we are experiencing love, then we kind of have this warm, fuzzy feeling, and I think we have this cultural understanding that if it's love, then it's easy. If, if it's love, then it's effortless. If it's love, then we're moved in such a way that we do good deeds without thinking about it, without putting forth effort. And I think sometimes we can think that way as Christians as well. You know, maybe we come to church and we hear a message about loving our neighbor or loving God. We hear a story that moves us, and then we are all excited about putting those things into practice, about loving our neighbor as ourselves, and then we walk out the doors of the church and somebody cuts us off on the way home and that love goes out the window. And we feel like love is something that should be easy. Love isn't easy. Sometimes love is messy. Often love is difficult. Sometimes we don't want to love the person who mistreats us. Sometimes we don't want to give to someone who's in need. We have other things that we'd rather be doing with our money. We might not feel like doing the things that love calls us to do. In short, our cultural understanding is that love is fun, easy, and carefree. But Jesus shows us that true love is messy. And true love is difficult. And in this passage, he's going to demonstrate what that true love looks like. And John is going to give us some insight into how Jesus does what he does. How does he gain the strength to love in the way that he does? And so there's three questions I'd like to consider briefly as we look at this passage. First, what is true love? Second, how can we engage in true love? And third, why would we want to engage in true love? So let's look at these three questions. First, what is the nature of true love? It says in the text that Jesus knew that his time on this earth was short. 
And John tells us, having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. Now this could indicate that he simply loved them to the end of his life, a temporal marker that he loved them his whole life, but it also could indicate the depth of his love. Uh, One scholar suggests, and I quote, that this represents one final proof of his love. Another scholar suggests that it's, uh, and I quote, love to the last breath, or love in its highest intensity. So the disciples were having supper with Jesus, and then Jesus gets up kind of unexpectedly and does something that from a cultural understanding would have been shocking. In fact, if, if you look at other ancient Near Eastern literature, there's no other record in all the, the records that we have that I know of that a rabbi washes the feet of a disciple. In fact, you can almost imagine a disciple washing a rabbi's feet, uh, but even then, you know, rabbis were, were, had these disciples that would follow them. Disciples were tasked with taking care of the rabbi. They would do all different sorts of tasks for the rabbi. They might cook for the rabbi. They might uh, provide lodging for the rabbi, might do chores, clean, do a number of things for the rabbi. But most people taught that there was one line that you didn't cross. You couldn't ask a disciple to wash your feet. That was something that was too lowly, too humiliating, too demeaning, even for a disciple. So servants or slaves were often the ones that washed feet. But it was, there was even a caveat with that. It was taught by some that it couldn't even be a Jewish slave that washed someone's feet. It had to be a slave from the other nations. And so what Jesus does here is shocking. Remember, last week we looked at the story of Mary and how Mary was overcome with love for Jesus and how she anoints Jesus' feet with ointment. And you can kind of understand that. People could kind of understand what she did. I mean, it was a great display of love, but it was inferior, an inferior showing love for a superior, so to speak. But Jesus turns that on its head. And what Jesus does here is it says that he took off his outer robe. And when he does that, what he's doing is he's identifying as a servant. He's taking the form of a servant. And then he gets down on his hands and knees. And you think about the, the culture back then. And, you know, they're wearing sandals. It's a very dusty, dirty climate. They don't have running water. And you think about just the mud that's pouring off of their feet as he's washing their feet. It would have been scandalous from a worldly standpoint. A great rabbi would never stoop to that level. They lived in the shame, honor culture, and if, if, the, if the rabbi stooped to that level, it would reflect poorly on him. He's humiliating himself. How can he be a great rabbi and yet wash feet? And yet that's what Jesus does. It's so shocking that Peter even refuses to allow Jesus to wash his feet. It's that shocking And just an aside, sometimes it is difficult to receive God's grace. It's difficult to receive God's grace because we realize that when we receive God's grace that we're in need, that our resources are insufficient. So Jesus disrobes, so to speak, puts aside his position as a great rabbi, takes the form of a servant, and loves by washing his disciples' feet. But this is just a pattern for what he does throughout his whole ministry. 
This is just a pattern for his life. He's already disrobed, left his throne room in heaven and become a human being. He's left the glory of heaven to become a man, taking the appearance of a servant. And we know that soon he's going to go to the cross, humble himself even to the point of death, even the point of a scandalous death. When someone died on the cross, it was considered to be a curse from God. And yet Jesus is going to stoop to that level to become a servant for all of humanity. Paul puts it aptly this way. Philippians 2, chapter, uh, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is love in its truest form. Love that's messy. Love that's difficult. And what's even more remarkable is that Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. He knows that just in just a short time, Jesus is going to ask his disciples to stay awake and pray for him. And yet they're going to all fall asleep. He knows that in his darkest hour, all of his disciples are going to leave him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him three times. He knows that Thomas is going to doubt him. He knows that Judas is already in the process of betraying him. And what does Jesus do? He still chooses to wash Judas' feet. He still chooses to show him love anyways. He takes the form of the servant and loves with all of his heart. And Jesus says if, if he engaged in that sort of love, if he, the Son of God, the one who left the throne room of heaven, engaged in that sort of love. He says that we also should engage in that sort of love. In verse 14, Jesus says again, If I then, you, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 19th century clergyman Henry Ward Beecher once said this, The world is to be cleaned by somebody. And, if you're, and you're not called of God if you're ashamed to scrub. The love that God calls us to is difficult. It's messy. And Jesus here is our standard and example for what true love looks like. So we looked at what does true love look like? What is true love? True love is messy. True love is difficult. Second question we need to ask ourselves is how can we engage in true love? And John gives us the answer to how Jesus engages in true love here. And the answer is twofold. The first answer is that we need to be sure of who we are. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God, and then it continues to say that he got down and washed the disciples' feet. He knew he was from the Father. He knew the Father had given all things into his hands. In short, he knew who he was. He knew who God, uh, the plan that he had in God's purposes. So he didn't have to aspire to a position of authority or influence. Uh, Paul says that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He knew that he was God. He knew who he was, and so he didn't have to try to maintain this position. He was free to humble himself. Many people think that the fastest person in the world today is Usain Bolt. And Usain Bolt has broken a number of you know, records and won gold medals and very, very fast individual. 
And imagine Usain Bolt decides that he's going to run in a Special Olympics for charity. And he runs in that Special Olympics and he's, you know, coming up next to all the participants saying, keep going, you're doing great, you're doing great, you're doing great. Now if he's doing that, do you think that he's thinking in the back of, my mind, of his mind, huh, I don't know that I'm really the fastest runner in the world. I don't know that I'm really that fast at all. I mean, I'm, I'm running a pretty slow time here. Or do you think he's thinking to himself, hmm, this really makes me look bad. I, I should probably just blow by everybody to, to show everybody how fast I am. He doesn't think those things because he knows who he is. He knows he's the fastest runner in the world. He knows what he's capable of. And that's what happens here in this passage. Jesus knows who he is. He knows he's the son of God. And so he doesn't have to aspire to some sort of position. And the same thing is true for those of us who are believers in Christ. We know who God has made us to be. We know that we're sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that God's Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We know that God has taken our sin upon himself in Christ, given us the gift of his righteousness. And if we know who we are, if we're secure in our identity, then we're free to humble ourselves. We're free to do things that are messy, that maybe even cause us to look bad. Because we know who we are, we know what God has called us to do, and we're secure in our identity. So that's the first answer that John gives us. Jesus knew who he was, knew where he came from, and so he could love with that kind of love. The second thing that we see is that we need to be sure of where we're going. It says in the text in verse 3 again that Jesus knew that he was going back to God. He knew that this servanthood would only be temporary. He knew that the cross was coming, but after the cross was the resurrection. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, we know that we'll experience suffering. We know that we'll experience hardship. We know that's coming, but we also know that it's temporary. We also know that for a believer, the best is always yet to come. We know as believers that God is working all things for our good and for his glory. We know that no eye has seen nor ear has heard what God has prepared for us in Christ. And so it's okay if we experience hardship, because we know it's temporary. There's a famous Impressionist painter, and his name was uh, Auguste Renaire. And Auguste Renaire experienced very severe arthritis near the end of his life. For the last 10 years of his life, he was basically... Uh, confined to his home, almost paralyzed by the pain from this arthritis. And he would have a number of students that, that came to his house and would kind of observe him and learn from him. And one of them was named Henry Matisse. Henry Matisse would come to uh, his house every single day. And uh, what was interesting was Auguste Renaire would still uh, try to paint, even in his condition. But the arthritis was so bad that he would have to hold the brush between his thumb and his index finger. And the students could hear him writhing in pain as he would paint each stroke. Well, one day he was painting and Henry Matisse came and uh, he was just in agony. Matisse just heard him crying out as he, as he painted each brush stroke. And Matisse asked him, August, why do you keep painting when it causes you so much pain. And Renaire responded and said, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. The pain passes away, but what we do for Christ remains. 
In the words of C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. When we're sure of where we're going, then we can endure hardship, even when love is difficult. I think perhaps the reason that we struggle with these things so much, at least sometimes, is that our faith is weak. If we're not sure who we are, then we won't have the confidence to love in ways that are difficult. We'll have to be careful about what situations we put ourselves in. We'll have to be careful to gain other people's approval, their affirmation. We'll require those things to fulfill our self-esteem. And so we won't be able to love like Christ calls us to love. If we're not sure where we're going, we'll maybe try to gain as much satisfaction from this life as we can. We won't be willing to sacrifice. Because, hey, if we sacrifice, we're missing out. 1981, this man by the name of Stuart McAllister, he was part of a mission. His primary task was to bring Bibles and tracts and other religious materials to uh, basically communist countries in Europe. And uh, one day, him and his team were traveling to Czechoslovakia, which was under communist control at that time, and they were captured. Their whole team was thrown into prison, and he started to question his faith, started to question God. He didn't know how long it would be before he was released. It turned out it was only two weeks, but he had his doubts. In retrospect, he writes, in such circumstances, we're forced to face what we mean when we speak of faith. Do we have to believe in spite of the evidence to the contrary? Do we believe no matter what? How do we handle the deep and pressing questions our own minds bring as our expectations and reality do not match? For me, in my time in prison, I expected God to do certain things and to do them in a sensible way in time. I expected that God would act fairly and quickly and that I would sense his intervention. My reading of scripture, my grasp of God's promises, my trust in the reliability of God's word, the teaching I had received and the message I had embraced had led me to expect certain things and in a particular way. When this did not occur in the way I expected or in the time that I thought it should, I was both confused and angry. See, we all want to be people of love. I mean, who, who of us would say, oh, I don't, I don't want to be a person of love. We all want to be people of love. And we hear admonitions where Christ calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we're like, yeah, I want to do that. And and we feel these emotions like we want to put those things into practice, but sometimes when it gets difficult, that goes by the wayside. And the thing is, it's when it gets difficult, that's when our faith is tested. Remember what Jesus says? He says even tax collectors, pagans, sinners, they love people who love them. When it's easy, when it makes us feel good, it's easy to love those around us. It's not easy when the person doesn't appreciate our love. It's not easy when the person is maligning us. It's not easy when it costs something. And yet that's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. And when we experience that kind of difficult love, that's when our faith really is tested. Do we really believe what God says about us? Do we really believe in our identity, who God has made us to be? Do we really believe where God is taking us? And if we do, then we'll be able to love those around us with the love of Christ. So the first question, why 
or what does true love look like? The second question, how do we engage in true love? And then the third question is, why would we want to engage in true love? Now, of course, the biggest theological reason why we would want to engage in true love is because of what Christ has done for us. We love because Christ first loved us, as it says in 1 John. So that's the motivation, the primary motivation. It's because we've been loved. And so we love out of gratitude. But there's also a secondary motivation. And that second motivation, secondary motivation for true love is that when we engage in true love, it brings joy to our hearts. Jesus says in verse 17, speaking of this servant mindset of loving with true love, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Another way to translate the word blessed is happy, filled with joy. If you live life as a servant, then you will experience joy. You will be blessed. I mean, this is completely counterintuitive. How can Jesus be saying that you can find joy in washing dirty, stinky feet? And yet that's exactly what he's saying. And as we follow Christ, it seems silly that loving our enemies or doing good to the downcast would bring us joy, but when we engage in these things, it does bring us joy. Albert Schweitzer, the missionary uh, doctor, 19th century once said this, one thing I know, the only ones among you who will really be happy are those who will, who will have sought and found how to serve. In an article for JSTOR Daily, a lady named Livia Gershom followed a zookeeper named Megan Neems at her job, and she wrote, Megan estimates that she spends 90% of her day scrubbing, sweeping, mopping, and disposing of the feces of dozens of species of animals. Yet when she talks about her work, she practically vibrates with excitement. Researchers have found that zookeepers have about the closest anyone in the modern secular world comes to having a calling. The sort of intensely meaningful career that Martin Luther said could turn work into a divine offering. And yet the article also notes, zookeeping is dirty, repetitive, poorly paid. And yet when people... Yet people volunteer for years, move across the country, and accept major sacrifices in their personal lives to be able to do that. Why do zookeepers find such joy in doing things that are so menial, so repetitive, so dirty? It's because they have a sense of purpose. It's because they have the opportunity not just to do the dirty stuff, but also to interact with these beautiful animals. And people are basically lining up to do that. It's a special work. And if someone like a zookeeper can find joy in their secular calling of doing those repetitive things, how much more can we find joy in doing the things of God? God has given us a special calling. He's called us to be lights in this world. To be agents of reconciliation. And when we engage in God's mission, when we serve like Jesus served, we think it would bring us sadness, but ironically, it brings us joy. Joy like maybe nothing else in this world can bring us. What an incredible privilege that we have to serve Christ. So then, to recap, what is the nature of true love? In this passage, Jesus shows us that true love is messy. True love is difficult. How does Jesus love? How does he have the strength to engage in true love? How can we engage in true love? By knowing who we are and knowing where we're going and then 
Why would we want to engage in true love? Because it brings joy to our hearts. There's a lady named Helen Roosevelt, and she was a medical missionary in Africa. And she was the only doctor in the hospital where she worked. And she was overworked, underpaid, and she was constantly frustrated. It seems like she couldn't even take a break because everybody was just asking her something, calling her to do something. And she was just frustrated and angry. And uh, this African pastor saw what was happening to her and decided he was going to do something about it. He saw how her attitude had just changed and she was growing increasingly cynical and bitter. So the pastor called her out to his house and said, Helen, I want you to have a spiritual retreat for the next two days. You're going to spend the next two days praying, spending time with God until your attitude changes. So she spends the whole day praying, reading the Bible. Nothing changes. Starts the next day praying, reading the Bible, and she's getting more and more frustrated because she feels like she's just angry at God, angry at other people. And so she, it's a Sunday night, and she comes up to this pastor and says, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm praying, reading the Bible, and I still feel the same way. And so they're sitting around a campfire, and this African pastor has his, you know, no shoes on, bare feet, and he, grow, he uh, draws this line in the sand with his toe. He said, Helen, the problem is there's a lot of I in your service. He said, I've, I've observed that oftentimes when you're working, you'll make your coffee, and uh, as you're making your coffee, you'll just sit there and wait for it to cool. He said, here's what I'll recommend. I recommend that as you're sitting there, uh, that you think, God, I want you to cross out the eye and give me, make me more like you, as he drew a cross in the ground. It was in that moment she started to realize what service truly was. In that moment she started to realize what freedom and joy was. That it was not in having control. It was not in accomplishing something. It was in being a servant. And from that on, then on, her life started to change. As believers, true message love is possible because of what Christ has done for us. He's made us clean. He's given us the example. He's taken our sin, given us His righteousness. As believers, we know where we're going. We can experience temporary hardships. We can do difficult things for the sake of Christ, for the sake of others. And when we do so, ironically, we experience joy like maybe nothing else in this world can give us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your humility. That you didn't stay up in heaven, high on your lofty throne, that you chose to come to the earth, to be born in a manger, to live a life of service, washing your disciples' feet, even a disciple who hated you, who had determined to betray you. And that after that you went to the cross, being scourged, being humiliated, being put on a scandalous cross so that we might experience life. We thank you for your example that you give us. Lord, help us to be people of faith, people who believe that we are who you've made us to be, 
people who are secure in our, our identity, that we know who we are so we don't have to try to compete with others, that we're free to be humble, free to serve, and people who know firmly where we're going. We know that we are headed for an eternity with you, eternity without pain, without hardship, without suffering. Lord, help us to be people who love you with all of our hearts, people who love those around us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.